You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. If you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 6. Ezekiel chapter 6, just as a matter of information... Uh, we've got a lot of new faces and uh, new families, and so y'all don't mind the man behind the curtain. Wow. All right, so if we have microphone trouble, y'all just ignore that, right? Listen to the Lord speak. Uh, so we have a lot of new faces. Let me just remind you in your bulletin, if you'll look on the back of your bulletin really quickly, there is information about how you can download the church app called Church Center. And on Church Center, there is a way for you to uh, not only uh, connect with your connect group, there's a way for you to see events that are coming up, uh, and so you can register for those events there. Uh, There is also a way for you to do online giving, if that's something that's convenient for you. A lot of folks are using that now, and so that is there for uh, your benefit, so make sure that you take advantage of that. Uh, And then, Lord willing, we'll see some more things that come up in the future, uh, some ways for us to connect with one another similar to uh, Facebook groups. So that information is there, uh, and there's some other information there that would be helpful for you, Uh, so I hope that you'll take advantage of of those things. Well, we turn a corner this morning in Ezekiel. Um, this is uh, a book that has been uh, so far um, kind of strange in places. Uh, saw somebody post a, a blog this week, um, a pretty good description of what Ezekiel might be like. Uh, but it's been a little strange up until this point. But by and large, it's been a, a message for us that we can take and we can go, okay. I see how I can apply that and I can run off and do these things that God is calling me to do. And we walk away feeling encouraged and inspired to do what God has called us to do. You turn the corner in Ezekiel chapter 4 and what you find is it is a very difficult message. In fact, all the way from Ezekiel 4 through about Ezekiel 32 is basically a collection of of the oracles or or messages from God regarding judgment against His people. So it's really a difficult place in Ezekiel for us to read, and yet it's something that we cannot skip over because it is a reality of God's Word, a teaching of God's Word, is that our God is a righteous judge. And that He, in fact, judges sinners in their sin. This is a message that cannot be avoided. And so we enter into it together, and I want to just give you a little bit of um, preparation up front. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at this pretty heavily, and you're going to walk away and go, Pastor, I just feel bad about myself. And I want you to know that that is not my goal. And I don't think it's the goal of the Word of God. The goal of the Word is not to tell us all the things that we are not so that we stay there and find ourselves in a place of despair. 
The goal of God's word is to show us who we really are and who God really is so that our understanding of his glory is lifted from the very low place at which we find it naturally to the very high place that it deserves to be. And so that you and I live out lives that honor God in the beauty of his holiness. It's the goal of understanding God's judgment. And it is a warning. A warning to those who would rebel against God that sin cannot be left unpunished. And so that's where we will begin this morning. We're jumping over chapter 4 and 5. I told you last week that we're going to be doing a little bit of that. We're going to do a little bit of that as we work through our, our, our way through Ezekiel because many of these passages are redundant and because I want you to see the big picture of all of Ezekiel's message. And yet there are some verses in chapter 5 that really create a good introduction for us as we begin in chapter 6. Let me just read these to you as you listen along. Thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations. And against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not acted even according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I am against you and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done and the like of which I will never do again. Those are the words of introduction to the next 28 chapters of the message of Ezekiel to the people of Israel. God is judging His people because of their pervasive wickedness, their sin. The judgment of God is the subject that must be dealt with in Ezekiel and it is certainly a subject that must be dealt with in our day if we're going to be both biblically faithful and culturally relevant. The message is God judges sinners. That is not only the the only way for us to be truly faithful to the Bible. It is a message that must be heard today. Make no mistake about it. Our God is a holy and righteous judge. He does not turn a blind eye, a blind eye to the sins of men. He does not. And that's the subject that must be dealt with in Ezekiel. And so what does holy, what does a holy and righteous judge require of his people? I want to give you this truth right up front, even before we read our key text for this morning. God requires a commitment to personal and corporate holiness from his people. God requires a commitment to personal And corporate holiness from His people. So just a reminder, 
Can these bones live? The answer is, Lord, only you know. Only God can raise the dead to life. Amen? Only God can do that. We're praying that God would raise up a gospel army here with the remnant of God's people at Southwide Baptist Church. That is our prayer to the Lord. But while it is God alone who can raise us up, there are some things that should accompany His raising us. One of those that we've already seen is a vision for God's glory. We must have a vision for God's glory and His glory alone. We looked at it in the last couple of weeks. We must have a voice for God's Word. We must proclaim His Word in everywhere that we go and to all that we meet. And this morning, as we begin to unpack over the next three weeks, not only do we need a vision for His glory and a voice for His Word, but we need a commitment to holiness among us. We must be a people who are committed to personal and corporate holiness. So, Ezekiel chapter 10, if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Ezekiel chapter 6. Ezekiel chapter 6. The Word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the cities shall be waste and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be wasted or will be waste and ruined. Your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet, I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations, when you have, have among the nations some who escape the sword, when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have broken, how I've been broken over their whoring heart. That has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Thus says the Lord God. Clap your hands and stamp your foot and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and is preserved shall die of famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon them, and you shall know that I am the Lord." When they're slain among their idols, around their, lie among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every leafy oak, 
wherever they offered pleasing aroma to to all their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate and waste in all their dwelling places. From the wilderness of Riblah, then from the wilderness to Riblah, then they will know that I am the Lord. Lord, we desire to know today that you are the Lord. Not just in our mind and as your word has said to us this morning, but to really feel that you are God in our hearts. God, for you to sit on the throne of our affections of our goals, of all of our perspectives, everything that we hope to be or to do. God, we pray that You would sit on the throne over those things and rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords because You alone are God. I pray this morning that You would evidence to us, that You would show us where we are idolaters. God, where we have worshipped other things, as Your Word says, where we have exchanged the glory of God for the lesser things that You have created. And I pray that You would forgive us, convict us, and change us. God, that we might be new today. That we might live alive as these dry bones that we read about in Ezekiel 37. I pray that You would be honored both personally in those things and corporately as well as we strive to honor You as a church. And then, Lord, if there is one here who is not a worshiper of the one true God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. God, convict their hearts and call them to the Gospel, to Yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The fact is, as we think about a valley of dry bones, the fact is, if we are going to live, if we're truly going to see life, spiritual life, then we must deal with sin. And in our culture, and in our church culture, so to speak, we, I believe, have far too casual of a view of sin in our day. We have been in times in the American church where a warning should have been resounded from the pulpit. A danger of creating legalistic religion. A legalistic version of Christianity that we call Christianity that is simply hellfire and brimstone and scaring people into making a decision for Christ and scaring them into obeying Jesus. And in that day, it is necessary for us to hear that we have a God who has loved us with an everlasting love. And that love motivates us to obedience. That is the message of God's Word in a legalistic culture. And yet I think that that version of Christianity is all too far gone. We have a version today that is comfortable with a light view of sin and a light view of the holiness of God and is more content with talking about the love of God at the cost of the justice of God and the judgment of God and the holiness of God. And in that kind of a culture, in this kind of a culture, we must hear again that not only has God loved us with an everlasting love in His Son, but that He has set a day that He will judge the world. 
And He will judge the world in righteousness. And all of those who turn away from a holy God will see the judgment of that God. And so as Peter said, let that judgment begin with the household of faith. Let us look to the judgment of God and see the holiness of God and be called to holiness ourselves. We need to be reminded of the holiness of God and the deep rebellion of the human heart. The seriousness of God's judgment. The jealous affection with which we must love Him and the jealous affection with which He loves us. And all of the moral restraint that has been thrown off altogether needs to return underneath a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so God brought down heavy judgment upon the people of Israel for this very same condition. When they knew they were God's chosen and yet they rebelled against Him. And I want us to be cautious this morning, even as we look at these 28 chapters, that we are not quick to look beyond them to the good news of chapter 33. Don't miss the seriousness with which God takes our sin and His own holiness. We're not going to take the time to read all the way through chapters 4 and 5 and to simply camp there, but I do want you to look at a few things. If you kind of... Look, look over chapters 4 and 5. I would encourage you to do this at home maybe this afternoon or this week. Maybe you've already done that. You'll know as you read through chapters 4 and 5 that there is just symbol after symbol of the seriousness with which God takes His holiness and our sinfulness. God uses a symbol at the beginning of chapter 4. It's a brick. And He tells Ezekiel to lay siege on that brick. And it's unrelenting. It's, it's a constant siege and an unrelenting siege that God is going to bring against the nation because of their sin. Ezekiel is told to lay on his side for 390 days. This gets me. 390 days Ezekiel lays on one side, his left side. And that picture for 390 days is a picture of 390 years that God would judge Jerusalem. 390 years. Then another 40 days on his right side representing another 40 years against Judah. During that time, they would, he would receive just a portion of food, not very much, basically beans and bread to show the lack of the people of God as they are, in, they are enduring his, his judgment against them. And he would cook that food, chapter 5 tells us, he would cook that food on cow dung. And that was an act of mercy. The original instructions were to cook it on human dung. It's to show the impurity of the people, their sinfulness, their deep wickedness. Ezekiel was to shave his head and with a third of his hair he was to show the scattering of the people and a third of his hair the burning of the people and a third of his hair the slaying of the people. Verse 14 in chapter, verse 13 in chapter 5 tells us, I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. Verse 15, you shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror 
to the nations all around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord. I have spoken. When I sinned against you, the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send and send to destroy you. And when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. God requires, this isn't a suggestion, God requires a commitment to personal and corporate holiness from His people. And so chapter 6 begins to address some of the things that compromise the holiness of God's people. In fact, some specific sins among the people in chapter 6 is particularly all about their idolatry. He begins with this imagery. You'll see it there at the beginning of chapter 6. This imagery of setting his face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesying against them. It was a picture of Israel thinking, hey, we're invincible. We know about mountains that they're almost impossible to move apart from a stick of dynamite. And even with that, it takes years to move a mountain. And what he's saying about this nation of Israel is that they, like the mountains, are, are stubborn and immovable and unshakable. They're prideful and large and in charge. They think that they've set themselves against God and nothing could ever happen to them because they are the chosen. And so he says, Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, not only the mountains, the hills and the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring the sword Upon you. And then he gets to the heart of the passage. And he says what it is that he is judging them for. I will destroy your high places, the places where you set up as places of worship to your idols. I'm going to destroy those. Not content for you to just walk away from them, I'm going to completely shatter them and crush them till there is nothing left. Your altars, desolate. Incense altars, broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. It's not content enough that the altars are destroyed, the idols are destroyed, the incense altars destroyed. He says, I will cast down the ones who worshipped those idols in front of those idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols and I will scatter your bones around your altars. It is, it is, a, it is a picture of you have dead gods you want to worship these dead gods? Well, then you can spend the rest of you, your eternity worshiping a God who cannot save you. This is the judgment that He hands over to the people. And He says, not just there in the land of Israel, but wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste, high places ruined, so that your altars will be wasted and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And when the slain fall in your midst, here is the result of that. You shall know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. 
Verse 11, as you jump down, that was verse 7. If you jump down to verse 11, there is a clapping of the hands and a stomping of the feet as if to make fun of these people who are worshiping these dead gods. To think that somehow these gods could save them or give them all the desires of their heart or somehow somehow be a, a, a guiding force in their life. For them to think that they could worship this. Oh, go ahead and clap your hands and shout for joy over these gods. Now you find yourself slain before. For them. It is always what happens whenever we fall into the pattern of idolatry in our lives. The way that seemed right to us to begin with is the way that ends in destruction. And so God rebukes them for their idolatry. Notice He destroys the places of idol worship, all the symbols, the people. And then He makes His point by laying the bodies down before them. He rebukes their pleasure in idolatry. And he declares that there will not be any stone unturned when it comes to these places and these people and these idols. Every place from Ribla, from the wilderness to Ribla, every place laid to waste. And he did that because he wants to show that he is God alone. The people had put that to the side. Worshipped other gods before him. They had violated his very first commandment. And not only violated it, but violated it pervasively in every area of life. So he says in verse six, uh, chapter 6 and verse 7, You shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 10, They shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 13, You shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 14, They will know that I am the Lord. He wants us to make no mistake about it, that there is one and only one true God. Yahweh. One God. And so, we, like Israel, are prone to idolatry at every turn. There is a constant danger for us to give our affections and our obedience and our mind and our life away to the things of the world that are lesser things instead of to the One who has created us. So what is God saying to us as a people? We must constantly guard our hearts against idolatry so that God is worshipped alone. We must constantly, without fail without any kind of break, without any kind of rest, all of the time, we have to constantly be guarding our hearts to guard against idolatry in our hearts so that God is worshipped alone. So we think about a commitment to personal holiness. You will be hard-pressed to find the word holy in this passage, and yet we do have a very, the very picture of what holiness is. Our students have been studying the holiness of God on Wednesday evenings as we study together in worship. The word holy, as most of you will know, is the meaning set apart. When we talk about the holiness of God, it means to be utterly unique. To look around in all of the earth and everything outside of the earth and all of the created universe, and to look for something that somehow resembles God, we would absolutely come up empty. Utterly empty. 
because there is no one and nothing in all the earth that could be compared to Him. This is what God asked the people through Isaiah. He said, who will you liken me to? And the answer to the question is, of course, no one. He is holy. It means He is God alone. Utterly unique. At the same time, He is morally perfect. To be holy as we're talking about God is that there is no standard of comparison for His character in His moral uprightness. He is utterly unique and totally perfect. So to rebuke the people for their idolatry is to declare to the people an expectation that they regard Him as holy. They have said, there are other things we could worship instead of you. And so you're not the one true God. You're not utterly unique. You're not morally perfect. We can do these things. Furthermore, their character was to evidence His character. Be holy as I am holy, He says to them. That is what it means to worship God alone. It is to emulate His moral perfectness and to also love Him in His utter uniqueness. That's what it means to worship the Lord and the beauty of His holiness, as the psalmist said. And so the second part of that, to emulate His moral holiness, we'll look at next week. But here, in this passage, to be holy is to recognize Him as God alone. To give God our affections alone. In other words, nothing else rules us. No one else is our king. Nothing else consumes our thinking and our planning and our heart. Nothing else comforts us like God comforts us when we are grieving. Nothing else sets our mind and our eyes to awe as we think about who our God is. Nothing else is consuming our our thoughts and our plans and our mission in life, our purpose. Everything that we do is now wrapped up in who He is. This is what it means to regard Him as holy. A commitment to the holiness of God then is what God requires of us. So that we know and others around us know by looking at our lives and by us examining our own hearts and our our own knowledge of who God is through His Word so that everyone around us knows and we knows that He alone is God. That's the call. We tend to think about our idolatry as the worship of images, statues. You might think about a, a Buddha or... Nations overseas who will build altars to foreign gods. And you might look around you and think Christianity is the predominant, predominant religion, so to speak, in America. And we, we don't worship false gods. And yet, the idols of our own hearts may not be like the idols that we see in this passage, but we do have them. An idol is anything that puts itself or that we put on the altar of worship, the throne of our hearts. It is, as Romans 1 says, exchanging the glory of God for creatures and created things. It is to place the affection of our heart on things rather than on the one who created those things. And yes, our hearts are full of them. John Calvin wrote in his Institutes, 
The human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. He goes on to say, the human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity as it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes vanity and and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives it birth. And this is who we are according to Romans 1 by nature. And we are deserving of the same judgment of God that we see in this passage. Think about the idols of our culture. Money. Entertainment. Our career. Sports. Sex. Politics. Social media. Hunting. Fishing. Image. And so on. We could make a list of all of the idols of our culture and we could go on and on about how these idols take hold of our hearts, but I don't think we really need to. Because I think that you and I, if we hear those things and we think about the idolatry of our own hearts and and go there into our hearts and and peruse and look for the idols that are there, I, I think that inevitably we find them. There's no argument about that. Many of those things evidence themselves within the church. We're constantly prone to put the affections of our heart, the faculties of our mind on other things and to exchange the glory of God for lesser things, even within the context of the corporate body. Most clearly in seeing those idols, they're demonstrated in how we spend our time and how we spend our money. Yes, we are guilty of idolatry. Or... Perhaps we have an unbiblical view of who God is. We've adopted a teaching into our lives and into our mind that maybe the Bible doesn't teach, but we just simply believe based upon sentiment and based upon tradition, and we begin to worship that God. And the problem is that if that God is not the God of the Bible, then all we are doing is worshiping an idol. God will not be second in the lives of His people. He will not be second. If we are to be raised to life, if we are to be this shining light for the Gospel, if we are to be an army for the Gospel in our community and across the nations, then God must be number one. Our all-consuming person of worship. And this is actually where we find the Gospel. I love this. The Gospel doesn't begin in Matthew. The Gospel begins in Genesis 1.1. We see it here in Ezekiel chapter 6 and verse 8. He says, Yet I will leave some of you alive. Oh, I will leave some of you alive. We're not told why. We're not told who. 
We're not told what reason in them. Maybe that God found and here's the reason. Because there isn't one. It is purely by His grace and purely by His free and expressed choice that He chose to save some. Only by God's grace did He choose to save and keep some alive. And it's not because He set aside His judgment for them. It's because He satisfied His judgment. We read that. Go back to chapter 5 and verse 13. Thus shall my anger spend itself and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. God satisfied His holy judgment against the people and in His grace He chose to save some. It is the Gospel. Because when we think about what God has done through Jesus Christ in the New Testament, as Jesus came, He did not set aside His holy judgment on you and me for my sin and your sin. God in His mercy, watch this now, in the same holy fury that He unleashed His His anger and His wrath against His people. In the same holy fury, He unleashed His wrath against His Son. Jesus took the penalty that was due us. He took God's holy wrath. And you and I have been set free not because God put His judgment aside and not because somehow God just gave us a get-out-of-jail-free card, but because God satisfied His holy wrath in Jesus so that you and I could experience His everlasting love. That is the Gospel. And so this this should absolutely drive us to our faces in worship. Jesus came not to leave us in our idolatry, but to save us from it. So that we would not give our, our worship to lesser things, but rather that we would give our worship to a holy and perfect and one of a kind God. And in this, we actually find the pathway. We find the pathway to remaining and guarding our holiness. Verse 8, he says, I will, I will leave some of you alive. And then notice what he says about them being alive. When you have come among, or when you have, uh, when you have among the nations some who have escaped the sword, when you scattered, when you are scattered through your countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations. Those of you who escape will remember me among the nations. How is it? That we escape the judgment of God. That we escape the idolatry that we are so prone to wander into when we are under the blood of Jesus. How do we continue to guard our hearts is the question. Number one, remember the holiness of God. Remember the holiness of God. Then those of you who escape will remember me. You will remember me. When you look around and your life is not consumed, you will remember me. When you look around and you see your own sinfulness, your choices, when you look in the rearview mirror and you see your past life and the decisions that you've made to rebel against God, all of the sinful choices you've made, all of the foolishness in your life, when you look around and you see those things, you will remember me because you will still be standing. 
And in my grace, you will recognize what I have done in your life. And you will again worship me for me and me alone. And I alone am God. That's what it is called. That's what we call on ourselves to do. What God calls, us, calls on us to do in order to guard the holiness of our lives. The idolatry that we're prone to. Remember that He judges our sin. This is what the writer of Hebrews calls upon the people to do. To remember the death of Christ. And don't, don't go, all, go on... Uh, Go on sinning. We read part of Hebrews 10. The remaining verses go on to say that if we go on sinning, that we count the cross of Christ as, as of no effect. That we trample the blood of the Son of God under feet. Oh, remember the judgment that was poured out on Christ because of your sin. Remember the Word of God that came to you to instruct you in righteousness, to show you who God was, to give you this vision of His glory that you could not mistake. Oh, remember that day. Remember the holiness of God and worship and give testimony to the nations that you are in that I would have been in the same place were it not for the grace of God in my life. That reality will guard you from idolatry. Because in that, our view is not of ourselves, but of the God who has saved us. Remember the holiness of God. And secondly, repent of idolatrous hearts. Notice what he says here. And by the way, this is incredibly strong language. Verse 9, latter half of verse 9, into verse 10. How I have been broken if you remember how he has been broken, it's an interesting play on words there. He uses the same word that he uses to describe the idols. In other words, I'm going to shatter them because you shattered me. In all of your choosing of other things, you shattered me. It was as if you looked at me and made me the worthlessness of those idols. And yet I am not worthless. He uses a second image. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me over departed from me and over their eyes who go whoring after idols. We don't even have to explain that one. Parents, explain that to your kids later. We're unfaithful. We chase after things. With every new thing, new temptation, our eyes follow. There's a song that talks about us wandering. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I I don't know if you, Christian, feel the, the... The burden of that, I long for the day that that we are in the presence of Christ, that I see Him face to face and I no longer have any temptation to sin. I long for that day. Don't you long for that day? But until then, there is this fleeting glance, this passing glance that we constantly are tempted to and we go after it with our hearts and we are so prone to wander. Repent. Keep repenting. It says that they will be loathsome. The ones who escape will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils they have committed for all their abominations. 
Oh, that that would be our view toward our own sin. That we would be loathsome over the sinfulness of our hearts. But verse 10 picks us up and says that they shall know that I am the Lord yet again. Aren't you thankful for that? Even in the midst of my deep depravity and now being saved, my, my proneness to wander away from the Lord, it still happens that God keeps bringing me back to the place that I know that He is the Lord. This is the Gospel. This is salvation. Not that I keep myself, but that God is keeping me. And praise God, because by His power, by His power, I will finish this race. I will keep the faith and I will press on and I will sing for all of eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Would you bow your heads this morning? The refrain of this passage is, you shall know that I am the Lord. Does your life evidence that? The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 as he was in Athens looking around at the culture and the people and trying to find a way to share the good news of Jesus with them. He was brought before a people who would try him and question him about his faith. And when asked for a response, he said, I've walked around. I've seen your idols. And so I wonder, I wonder if you were to do a walk around your own heart this morning, what idols you might find there. The call of God's Word is very clear that you would remember the holiness of God and that He will not be beside another. There is none beside Him. Have no other gods before His face. Turn from your idolatry and trust in Christ once again today. Put Him first. See that He is number one. For some of you this morning, that means that you need to turn to Christ for the very first time today. You've been chasing the things of the world and today you need to give up the throne of your heart. You see, the funny thing about idolatry is that it's actually us who sit on the throne if we're honest. The reality is today you need to give up the throne and give King Jesus the seat that He rightfully deserves. Today, trust in Him. So in just a few moments, I want to invite you to come. You've never trusted in Christ. I want to invite you to come down this aisle and say to me today, Pastor, I, I want to know Jesus. I turn from my idolatry and I trust in the one true God today. And I'll help you. There's others here that will pray with you. Just like we've had some come to faith in Christ recently, God, we, we long for that today. We long for that today. And so would you do it among us? Can I invite you to stand with me all across the room as we pray? And I'm going to pray. This altar is going to be open. You come and spend time with the Lord today. Follow Him. Obey Him with your life. Lord, I pray that You would have Your way in our hearts. God, that You would be enthroned there and that You would be honored by all that happens. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Even as the music begins to play this morning, you come. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. 
We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ. Thank you.